the Many Things Podcast. Welcome to the show, Mr. T Hawks. Hello, hello. Very happy to be here. As always, good to see you, mate. We're both dressed very smartly today, both in hoodies. Um, well, that will stop. Lovely. So today, topics we're going to talk about is air pollution. And then we're going to do a little bit on the Rugby World Cup, weren't we? So living in central London yourself, you've experienced firsthand this air pollution. Compared to your parents in rural Devon, there is a noticeable difference, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, sometimes you sit on the on the central line, you know, on the tube, like you can stand at one end of the platform and you can see a visible haze in the air. You look to the other end of the platform and it's like fog. There's like a fog in the air. It's uh, it's appalling. Do you want some stats? Well, you're going to get some stats anyway. So the Guardian has just hit the headlines recently. Uh, their study, same as DW News in Germany, reports that only 2% of people in Europe live in places where the, the, the World Health Organization consider there to be a safe level of, of uh, air quality. So all of Europe basically has dangerous levels of air pollution and causes a wide range of diseases, including lung damage, heart damage, cognitive impairment, explains a lot, mate, you live in London, um, cancers, and high risk of dementia and early death. So we really do need to do something to clean up our air pollution, basically. Yeah, we definitely do. I mean, so when I, I, I when I'm traveling in London, I, I'm either on my electric bike or I'm on the tube. And they both have big pollution problems. Going on the tube, it's hot. The only good one is the Elizabeth line, because what they do is they have separate, they have a wall on the platform that that separates the, the train from the rest of the platform, and then they have sliding doors that open, and it keeps all the pollution from the train tracks away from the platform. So those doors, the, the train lines up perfectly, and then those doors only open when the train is there. But that the Elizabeth line is the only line to do that. With cycling, it's so obvious. So I'd say now in London, when I'm cycling along, perhaps 15, I'd say about 15% of the, it's hard for me to tell because I always notice electric vehicles, but I'd say 15 to 20%, maybe that's, maybe I notice them more is electric. And you, I can feel it when I'm, because there's a lot of traffic. I go faster than traffic on my bike. And Big I, man. Oh, yeah, flex, mate. Uh, if you drive a Lamborghini, you're not going to beat me, 100%. Um, but, like, I can tell when suddenly I'm driving and I'm like, I'm inhaling quite a lot of diesel fumes right now. It's obvious. You can smell it. You can taste it. And it's it's it's, it's bad. It really is. Like, before when I was, a, you know, before when I had my car and I lived in the countryside, all this ULEZ zones and stuff I was like nah this is ridiculous and now I live in London I cycle I'm like it's important it's really really important. Love a nice dose of carbon monoxide in the morning on your way to work don't you? Didn't we work this out though uh, your cycle to work which is basically through central London and only a quarter of it's actually got cycle lanes. Yeah basically yeah it's um it's better than other places, but it's, it's London's still pretty poor. We need better provision, really. I mean, people are trying to make a big difference. I mean, I um, I was wondering 
past uh, my neighbor's house the other day and they had the landscapers over and these guys they travel around on an electric bike with a trailer on the back with all of their gardening tools in and i just thought that was the coolest thing that they were you know doing that it's good for the environment it's good for their wallets it's good for everyone really it's good for traffic um yeah i read <clears throat> I rate that a lot because one thing that is noticeable when you go to a city that really not a lot of cars are allowed to drive through the centre, such as Amsterdam, and you really do notice um, just like the air quality difference, and it's just safer. But and then you just have to worry about getting hit by bicycles, which do just come out of nowhere, and trams. But there is really something we could learn from from them with our model and like banning cars in the centers of cities like London and Bristol. The pollution is like disgusting. It's clearly having detrimental impact on so many people's health. Yeah, I don't know. We're not really moving quickly enough towards it. So do you want to guess, time for a little quiz, how many people a year are killed by air pollution in Europe? Uh, I could buy a pollution in Europe. Well, it's going to be urban people. Uh, every year. I mean, that's tough. I'd say 10,000. Almost 300,000 a year. Oh, yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? 30,000 a year in the UK as well. Because when the, uh, remember when COVID was happening and the lockdown res restrictions, and there was that debate at what stage do we lift the restrictions? And I got quite a few arguments with people at this. And my argument was that, look, if 30,000 people a year are dying from air pollution, once the COVID deaths get to around that similar number, you can't have the entire economy locked down and everyone not allowed to move because of this, because we never used to do this before. It's, it, it's not balanced. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's so true. And it was and it's like it's it's no individual's choice to inhale air pollution you know i remember you made i remember you made the same argument with diabetes you were like well diabetes and you know is killing more people than covid and you know but the, the the difference with that was it was their choice if you want to be obese and eat you know 100 grams of sugar a day that's technically your choice in the case of air pollution it's not it's not your choice you know you shouldn't be made to inhale poison put out by others you know it should be the people that are putting out the poison that are responsible for the harmful effects and it's it's still not really the case no it's not and i did some deep diving last night on the issue so obviously we understand how lobbying works when private companies pay lawyers to go through the courts to fight uh, legislation that the government wants to put into place now quite a few people so obviously you mentioned earlier the ULES. And there are other similar um, clean air zones. There's a clean air zone recently been introduced in Bath and Bristol, targeting predominantly older vehicles and also uh, diesel vehicles. So, but with this lobbying against it, there is a, a company called uh, Logistics UK. Now, I'm going to read an article from the uh, Guardian that I was reading earlier. 
So it says Sainsbury's, Asda and Waitrose are members of a group that lobbies against clean air measures whilst trumpeting their green credentials, an investigation has found. The supermarket giants are powerful affiliates of Logistics UK, which has lobbied against clean air zones in UK cities and lists one of its policy achievements last year as delaying six clean air zones for as long as possible, according to Desmog, an environmental investigations website. That's good, isn't it? It's not good enough. And the, the, I think the reason they are is because it's, it's just saving them quite a bit of money. Like, so the, the, the worst polluters uh, in London when I'm sort of anecdotally cycling along are these sort of like HGV style lorries. Yeah. They're still, and and they'll, be all the, they'll be all the Sainsbury's deliveries, the Tesco's deliveries, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. They want to go straight to, uh, you know, the middle of Hammersmith, the middle of whatever, to deliver their stuff, and they are, oh my God, you know, it's it's you cycle behind one of them, and it's 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 like inhaling a bonfire. It's crazy. Like what they should do is have, you know, big warehouses on the outskirts of London with a big fleet of electric vans. All the food gets delivered to that central location and is distributed by electric vehicles from there. Would that be crazy? Is that mm -hmm. crazy? No. no. Well, I think the majority, the majority of Amazon vehicles in the UK these days are electric as well. But clearly these companies don't want to pay the, uh, the sunk costs for switching to EVs just yet. And yeah, it is quite shocking. It's quite hypocritical of them, isn't it? These supermarkets, they're all pledging to be green. It's a case of greenwashing. Yeah, at the same time, they're lobbying against uh, legislation, which is trying to make, you know, town centres and cities have clean air. Like, it's quite crazy, to be honest. And um, so, so this environmental group that was behind the research, uh, Desmog, said supermarkets were among the most powerful as consumer-facing businesses responsible for huge amounts of freight traffic, which is basically exactly what you just said. So, yeah, it is because they have, right, we don't want to pay all of these fines for doing our door-to-door -door deliveries. And, yeah, they do need to switch to electric. So if you're listening, the uh, CEOs of Asda, Sainsbury's and Waitrose, sort it out, mate. Sort it out, sort it out. Uh, did you hear about the uh, the... I think it's Sunak saying that he's changing our no petrol cars being sold by date to it was 2025 and that was 2030, I believe. I Did thought it was about, 2030 going to 2035. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Actually. Today's episode is brought to you by UX Torches, providers of small, high-efficiency, military-grade aluminium waterproof torches. They're long-distance and perfect for outdoor activities such as camping and hiking. Or, if like me, you just need it to take your bins out at night time. Whatever your need, get yours at www.uxtorches.com. That's www the letter u the letter x torches.com yeah okay action after 24 hours of frenetic political briefing the prime minister held a hastily conveyed press conference at downing street to announce that the 2030 ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars and gas boilers would be pushed back to 2035 so yeah i mean i guess it's probably just 
some of the, the the further right in his party are just pushing, you know, they're typically less environmentally conscious. I mean, that lines us up with the EU. So the EU have, have, have made that 2035 pledge and we were ahead of the game. I don't know if you know this, but loads of these car companies in the last year have made commitments to make huge like battery plants and all this sort of stuff in the UK. So there's going to be a huge battery plant in Somerset. Um, Mini, I mean, BMW are making the new electric Mini in England. Loads mm-hmm. of these big car companies have made these big commitments to set up base in England. And I think that's mainly based off the fact that we are, supposed we were going electric before everyone else. And I, maybe they've been very clever. They've stolen all the business and now they're going, yeah, actually, you know, we're, uh, or maybe. <laughs> These car companies are going to go, well, you know, we might we might actually now move our plans because you said we were you were going to be all electric and um, you lied. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it is true. I think it's uh, isn't it Tata Tata that own um, Jaguar Land Rover are building a new plant battery plant in Somerset. Yeah, I believe that's it. Yeah, that's the one. Because yeah. there was rumours for a long time, actually, and substantiated rumours at that, that Tesla were going to build one of these type gigafactories in just on the outskirts of Bridgewater. Because I almost exactly. fell off my chair when I read a news article that Elon Musk has landed in uh, in Bridgewater in his private jet, like looking at a proposed area. But I think it was because of Brexit. He uh, did a U-turn and it ended up being built in Berlin. So for people that don't know what Bridgewater's like, um, Tom, how would you describe Bridgewater? Um, it could use the investment. I mean, the surrounding countryside is quite beautiful, but Bridgewater itself is, um, I don't know, you know, if you like overweight ladies in um, tight leggings pushing young children on, on in, you know, while smoking cigarettes, then, you know, it's kind of the place for you. Yeah, it's it's like Saint Tropez, except in every single conceivable way. I'd say. <laughs> I would I would agree with that. I would agree with that sentiment. Yeah. Re- regardless, uh, though, this new uh, these new battery factories, uh, the new electric car factories from Tata, will be a great source of uh, jobs for the area, which is is actually similar to. Have you heard of Port Talbot? Is also owned by um, Tata Steel the uh, Indian Steel Company, and I'm pretty sure it's one of the biggest uh, steel processing plants in the UK. But our government has just paid £500 million, basically given this steel company £500 million in order to persuade them to uh, keep producing, but with a more sustainable type of steel. Now, I love Port Tile, but I know you're not supposed to like industry and stuff, but I really do love it. Whenever I drive to a Three Clips Bay beach, you see the uh, this this huge blue flame and all this, this factory that's running 24 hours and this like 50 foot blue flame shoots out the top of this big steel tunnel thing. It's really cool. Big old chimney. Okay, one sec. Tata Steel announced a revival plan for its UK unit, securing a £500 million grant from Rishi Sunak's government to help fund the transition of the Port Talbot plant to be more sustainable technologies. And I was trying to read about these more sustainable technologies. The the, the blast furnaces, so the ovens where they produce the steel, 
and they, they're trying to make a different type of steel that releases less sort of emissions, I suppose. And as a result of that, um, yeah, our government's given them half a billy. That's significant. My goodness. My goodness. It's significant. There you are. If you're interested, you live in South Wales and you've got nothing to do, go and have a look at the uh, Port Talbot steel manufacturing site. It's quite impressive. Mm -hmm. See the blue flame. Should we talk about the rugby? Yes, let's talk about what was. I mean, so obviously, Ireland, South Africa last night, it could in Paris, could well have been the. We might be seeing exactly the same game in the World Cup final because they are so impressive, both of them. It was an unbelievable game. It was a true advert for rugby. Even in a low-scoring game, it was insane to watch. You said just before we got on this call that it was like watching sort of 50 car crashes. The, the hits were unbelievable, mate, wasn't it? What do you think? <laughs> Yeah, it was insane. Have you watched a viral video of those two rams that like run each run at each other and headbutt, and then they're just there like days? It's like a herd of rhino. It's like a herd of rhino. I mean, the level of I mean, it's the per, like the the level of talent that these guys have, the level of aggression that these guys have, and the desire they have to win is in like I I get tired. I got tired just watching it. And that game was over in a flash last night because it was so there was so yeah, much action. Yeah, yeah. It was over in a flash. The thing that stro- strikes me is the level of physicality. Like, I'm a reasonably big person. I'm six foot two, about eighty-five kilos. But I'm pretty sure half of those tackles, if that was me last night, would have killed me. Yeah, there was just the ferociousness of them. I mean, can you imagine being all of, all of those players waking up today? how they're feeling oh oh you wake up you're like oh i'm dying i'm literally dying brutal the thing that me and my dad always talk about is the difference in physicality rugby now to say like the 1980s the size difference Mm. the thing about south africa are they've got that dutch heritage and as we well know they're the tallest people in the world so They've almost got that sort of African work ethic with the Dutch size that just makes them utterly formidable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's that combination, the, the sort of Dutch athleticism with the South African just grit and yeah. ability to endure pain that us English have lost many, many, many years ago. Here we go. This is from a website called Ruck Science. Clearly some rugby website. So in the study, the body mass and height of players representing their countries in the first game of the five nations. In 1955, the average player's body mass was 84.8 kilos in contrast to 2015, which had risen to the average player's body mass of 105 kilos. Average. Average. The average guy on the pitch is over 100 kilos in weight. I mean, that's unbelievable stat. That's an unbelievable stat. The size of these people. I mean, relative to each other on the pitch, they all look, you know, fairly normal. But I remember a few years ago watching the England rugby team get off the uh, get off the bus at Twickenham, and 
I was just like, every single one of them is a literal giant. Every single one of them is insanely big. And it's all relative when they're on the pitch. When you see them in real life and you just, you just shocking, mate. Absolutely shocking. It is because I suppose like, like how CTE is, you know, getting more coverage in American football now with its impact. It's the same with rugby because the problem you've got is but from 1955 or whenever the stat came from, like our skulls haven't like evolved to get thicker yet the players have got quicker and much heavier so the impact they're sustaining is just on their heads it's just so much bigger they have practice of taking these hits you know they're doing it in training day in day out your body gets used to just taking like massive impact but i think i don't know like in a way it adds to the drama of the occasion it it built it makes me have so much more respect for them these guys are literally putting it all on the line for the glory of winning and it's just like i don't know it's like modern day gladiators it's you know it's it's just it just adds to the respect that i have for these people that they just you know their bodies are broken and they just keep going and going and going it's so impressive i mean so jack willis the number i think it's the england number seven he had a terrible knee injury that took him out. He then got another terrible knee injury. He didn't think he was ever going to play again. And then because he was at Wasps, he was then made redundant. And now he's playing for England in the World Cup. And it, last season, he won the um, top 14 league with Toulouse in France. So, you know, like the tenacity for these people is just really inspiring. It's one of the reasons I love rugby. Wow. That is incredible. That is. So the 2019 Rugby World Cup in Japan, they reckon had a viewership of total viewership of 857 million people around the world tuned in to watch it. And this this year's World Cup is expected to be bigger, which is unbelievable. Another reason why I quite like rugby, though, is the sort of like the, the lad culture that comes along with it. Obviously, you know, like the Mike Tyndall incident, whenever it was, the midget, the midget tossing event he turned up to in 2000. Was it 2011 World Cup? I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a certain, there's definitely a camaraderie, and like it was so nice to see all of the Irish fans show up. Like, can you? And they're so. It's the thing about rugby nations are these they can have incredible teams. So, for instance, Fiji, incredible team, beat Australia, didn't they? The population of Fiji is under a million people. Okay, it's got like imagine the whole country is a twelfth of the size of London. Everyone, you think about okay, how many people are so you split that in half, so half a million of men. You then think I don't know maybe. Yeah, age groups. So what? what's that? Probably 20% of them are at playing age, maybe? 10%, mm-hmm. 20%? And that, so that's probably 50,000. So they've probably only got 50,000 guys. And how many of them want to play rugby? You know? Like, how many, like, you know, the... the the pool that these these that they have to choose from, and yet they're still just so impressive, is just, you know, I love it. Absolutely love it. Mm. The thing is, though, like the Fiji Islands, is that that Oceania region? Are they are they near Samoa? Fiji Islands, there's Samoa, Samoa. 100 miles east, and then there's Tonga south of them. The genetics of the people that live down there is just incredible. Yeah, they're just all, beasts, aren't they? 
They're all born to play rugby. I think they're just rugby mad nation, rugby mad people. The kind of people that lived on an island 2,000 years ago made a small canoe out of and then just went, yeah, I'm probably just going to find, you know, just going to get in my canoe and find a new island. And they did, you know, they travelled thousands of miles on these tiny canoes. It's just, you know, different kind of people, aren't they? Some seriously tough people. Some serious genetics. Oh, the well, tall Langies Samoan as well. Because they're not that tall, but they're all just thick. thick. Are they the tall Langies Samoan? Yeah, two, all the tall Langies are, uh, but they're from that region. I don't know if they're Samoan or Fijian or whatever, but they uh, obviously that's where their heritage is from. Just thick, thick bodied people, beasts. But yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Not only that, is a lot of them don't even play. So a lot of them, like Tuolangi, and you know, there's a there's a, another. A lot of them play for New Zealand, and um, the Islanders play for New Zealand, and they play for France, and you know, all sorts. So they're not only you know from this tiny little these tiny little countries that they're putting out an amazing national team, but loads of them go off and play for different countries as well. Yeah, exactly. The, the equivalent of like a brain drain when all the doctors in Africa go across to the US and the West. You get the same as sports, a sports talent drain as such, isn't it? No yeah. more noticeable than the England cricket team who, like in 2019, won the ODI World Cup. Now, I do love the cricket team. Out of all our players, I'd say Joffre Archer from Barbados. Our captain Owen Morgan was from Ireland. Ben Stokes was from South Africa. Roy was from South Africa. Um, you know, do like to do that, England. We like to poach players. And we do it by offering these um, talented 16, 17, 18-year-olds with these free scholarships into some of our top schools, sorry, like a Millfield or whatever, that have usually huge fees. And then after that, they live in England for three, four years, qualify, and then, you know. And then boom. Well, it's you can't blame them really because, you know, I mean, so when you get into the World Cup, you get massive, you get a big amount of money, you get a big grant from like World Rugby or whatever. And so much of the time, it's happened in Uruguay re, with this World Cup, and it happens happened to Fiji loads of times. This payment gets made to the board, the board, the board and it never go, and that's as far as it goes. You know, it gets stolen basically, stolen by the government, stolen by the board, stolen by whoever. And it's meant to. So these, you know, when they use these investments properly, they can make. Um, domestic teams that then go and play in leagues and then they have professional players who get paid to do nothing else but play rugby and then they get a better team but I mean it's happened with Fiji that um, you know their, their training conditions are so poor they can't even like they run out of rug balls for god's sake you know they're not playing on grass you know just the kind of yeah, because all of the money has been stolen by uh, the government by the board and it's happened the same thing happened in Uruguay this time none of the funding has reached any of the team because it's just been stolen by the higher ups. Thomas, and that's sorry, what, with Uruguay, think, are you suggesting that some of these Latin American countries could be corrupt? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> just to clarify, all countries are corrupt. I'm not singling out South America. World Rugby should pay a contractor to build a training ground, to build a stadium. If they were a bit more hands-on with the way this money got um used then there'd be a lot less corruption you know the closer to the end recipient uh, the money is placed the less corruption there'll be 
Absolutely. It, it's that, that level of oversight and read that is obviously very difficult to do. They should, you know, they should put more emphasis on this on countries that are at a greater risk of corruption for the sake of the players at the end of the day. It is the players that suffer. And similarly, I remember the West Indies cricket team, especially their T20 and one day's team, from around 2012 to 2016, you know, Chris Gale, Kieran Pollard, Andre Russell, Dwayne Bravo, they just had an incredible team. Yet, quite often find, even though they're some of the best players in the world, they would rarely be playing for West Indian side. And it was just down to a similar situation in that the money the uh, International Cricket Board gave the West Indies Cricket Board, the players were arguing weren't getting paid to them and they were getting low wages. But it got to such a severe extent that in a 2014 tour of India, they pulled out of the tour halfway through completely over uh, salaries and stuff. Like one of the first times in cricket history has happened. Um, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. But and then also you have with the cricketers, you have the Indian Premier League. So this IPL, it's a short, short form cricket tournament, but whereby some of the top players make sort of three, four million dollars in a space of about two months. Rugby doesn't really have that. I mean, the French League plays well. Is that the closest thing to that it has? Yeah, I think some of the top players in the French League will be on like 400, 500, half a mil a year. Probably. That's, that's as good as it gets. You know, in England, you're going to be getting, what, 200, 250 before tax um, a year to, to be top of the top of the range player will get. You get £20,000 every time you play for England. Um, but, you, you know, you're not going to make stupid money. Definitely not. Still, that's pretty tasty. Um, yeah. What are you saying? Bring it to an end? Go on, man. It's been, a, it's been a pleasure, mate. It's been a pleasure. Yes. Thank you for joining me, enduring your sore throat. It's much appreciated. Yeah. No worries, mate. No worries. It's been fun. Right. See you later. The Many Things Podcast.